This is Reset. I'm Susie on in for Sasha Ann Simons. More than 5 million adults in the U.S. have autism spectrum disorder. But social psychologist Devin Price wonders how many adults go through life either not knowing they have autism or hiding their autistic traits. He writes about his personal experience navigating this struggle and his years of research on autism in his latest book, Unmasking Autism, Discovering the New Faces of Neurodiversity. Price is also a clinical assistant professor at Loyola University Chicago, and he joins us now. Hey, Devin. Hi. So first, explain to us, what do you mean by unmask autism? Yeah, so in my book, I talk a lot about this population, this really diverse population of autistics who typically, because they're marginalized in some way, don't find out that they're autistic until much later in life than the kind of standard four or five years old um, that white cisgender boys from middle-class families usually get diagnosed at. Um, And so what happens if you are a black or brown autistic, a trans person, a woman, a queer person, someone in poverty, anybody who kind of of slips through those cracks of how autism has traditionally been defined, Mm -hmm. uh, your odds are really great of developing something that in the book I call masked autism. And masking is just taking steps to camouflage your disability, um, faking um, being neurotypical, learning to imitate people and social norms, even if you don't understand them or they feel uncomfortable, um, as well as taking steps to try and compensate for your disability. For So, for example, many autistic people uh, had to really have work-from-home jobs because mm-hmm. we find offices and daily meetings and workplaces really, really overwhelming. Um, those are just a few really small examples, but um, masking autism is just taking steps to hide who you are and conform to neurotypical standards. And unmasking, um, which I talk about also in the book, is just learning to get in touch with your authentic disabled self again. Yeah. It, what kind of toll does masking take on a person? Masking takes a really heavy cognitive and emotional toll. And this is something that we do have pretty decent data on at this point. Um, We know it is really um, mentally taxing and draining to pay constant attention to, am I sitting in a normal way? Um, Am I putting enough emotion into my voice so that people don't think that I'm being robotic or sarcastic? Sarcastic is one that I always get. People always think I'm being sarcastic when I'm not. Mm. Um, uh, Making sure that you're following kind of normal chit-chat social scripts. Um, not, but not only is it just really tiring and exhausting to do, we actually see in research that um, autistics who mask heavily, they are more lonely, they have more social anxiety, they're more depressed, and they're actually at a greater risk of suicide as well, um, which sounds really severe because it is. But when you really think about what living a completely inauthentic life does to a person, um, you can kind of see why that would be the case. Yeah, definitely. Well, how does your experience influence your writing and and research about autism? My interest in this topic and how I talk about it can't be separated from my own experience as a masked autistic person. Mm. I didn't find out I was autistic until after I finished my PhD in psychology. I was taking, you know, developmental courses, um, child psychology courses, clinical psychology courses at the graduate level. And even when I finished my PhD, I still had that stereotype Um, that autism is just for little boys who are Mm -hmm. obsessed with trains and don't socialize. It's really like pretty dehumanizing, narrow stereotype. Um, Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until after I was really struggling in my own personal life, professionally and socially and emotionally, and a cousin of mine did get diagnosed, that I went down this path of investigating what autism really was 
And that's when I found out there are queer people who are autistic, there's trans people who are autistic, there's women, there's people of color. We don't necessarily look like that stereotype of what autism looks like in young kids. And um, just giving a voice to those many different experiences was just really important to me. Yeah, and you mentioned a bunch of intersectional groups. What does the diagnostic criteria for autism look like? And, and does it give preference to some people over others? Yeah, so the autism diagnostic criteria, they were developed by um, Leo Kanner and Hans Asperger in the 1940s. And it was really based, as I already mentioned, on kind of white boys from usually middle-class or higher families. And it was only defined by how those kids looked from the outside. Mm -hmm. So the ways that those kids were a hassle, quote-unquote, to their families or might have messed with the kind of respectability of like upper-class families, you know. Yeah, And the really shocking thing is that the diagnostic tools that we use today are basically the same. They're still informed by those tools that were used in the 40s, 50s, and 60s to say, you know, oh, this boy, usually it was a boy, this gender boy isn't interested in socializing. Oh, this person's really obsessed with math or science. And what that means is, you know, even if you are really clearly socially struggling as, let's say, a young girl, if you're really fixated on horses, let's say, instead of trains, that's too feminine of a special interest. And so it won't get you flagged as potentially autistic. And if you're an adult and you're looking into this stuff, as I was, the tools that you are subjected to, the assessments you are given as an adult are assessments designed for children. I talk about in the book how one person in the UK who sought out a diagnosis in their late 20s had to sit down with a picture book and tell stories about what was happening to the frogs in the picture book. And that's really common. Um, So you can see how those really narrow tools, they exclude a lot of people in a lot of ways. Yeah, so the tools haven't really evolved much. And and you write about how autism is vastly underdiagnosed who is most likely to make it to adulthood without an autism diagnosis? I think class is the first thing we have to really talk about, especially in the U.S. Um, you know, only 50% of Americans roughly have good mental health coverage at all. And even then, a lot of that doesn't cover an autism assessment. A lot of U.S. insurance plans don't. People who are older, you know, I was growing up in the 90s and um, less than a fraction of a percent of kids were diagnosed as autistic back then. It was just not something that was on teachers or psychologists' radar unless it was super, super stereotypical and obvious. So if you're, you know, a millennial or older, the odds of having gotten diagnosed when you were young are super, super small. And then, as I already mentioned, it's super likely to be overlooked across the board if you're a woman, if you are gender nonconforming, or if you're a person of color. So give us a little context. You generally say autistic person instead of person with autism. Is there a difference in the terms that you use? Yeah. So most people in the um, autistic self-advocacy community prefer what's called identity-first language. Mm -hmm. So autistic person, or just even just saying I'm an autistic, as opposed to what's usually called person-first language, which is person with autism, person with disabilities. And there's a whole history behind this, but basically the short version is that in the 80s and 90s, a lot of non-disabled parents of disabled kids really, really pushed for person-first language. They, I think, were uncomfortable with their kids' disabilities, and so they tried with their words to create this distance that, um, you know, it isn't my kids' identity that they're autistic. They're afflicted with this thing. Mm. 
But most people in our community find that idea pretty offensive because we see our disability as a really core part of our identity. Yeah. You know, you wouldn't say, I hope that I'm a person with gayness. That right. would make it that would sound really weird and really yeah. othering. Um, you could just say I'm a gay person or a gay man. And it's the same thing with the autistic community. It's not a bad thing. It's not something we need to use a euphemism for, like special needs or handicapable. Usually that really comes across as condescending. And it's okay to just own, hey, I'm disabled and I'm autistic. Also in your book, you point out that, quote, a large percentage of autistic people are transgender and gender nonconforming. What accounts for that overlap and what does it tell us? I like to think of it as um, autistic people are out about who they are in much greater numbers than neurotypical people seem to be. Because we also know that um, autistic people are more likely to be out as gay or bisexual. They're more likely to be polyamorous. They're more likely to be open about just having kind of weird, niche, nerdy interests. We just generally tend to be more honest about stigmatized or othered things about ourselves than non-autistic people are. Um, So really, even though people talk about the two overlapping as if it's this problem to solve, I like turning that question back around and and saying, why are so many neurotypical people not open about being trans or bi or whatever else they are? Yeah, there you go. Well, why are trans people often missed or overlooked in autism screenings? There's a lot of factors going on um, at play because a lot of times before we transition, we're read as gender nonconforming. And I think um, the experience that seems to happen for a lot of people that I profile in my book and and the data suggests that if you're already kind of marked socially by your peers and teachers and, and parents as weird, often the institutions around you won't kind of tease apart the difference between what kind of weird you are. Mm. So if you're just really gender nonconforming and you're really passionate about things that society says you're not supposed to be, people often don't think, you know, they can't distinguish between is there a disability? Are there ways in which you need help and you don't deserve to be socially pushed to the side as much as you are versus, you know, how much discrimination is kind of at play as well. It gets, it becomes a tangled mess really quickly. This is Reset. I'm Susie on in for Sasha Ann Simons. We're speaking with social psychologist and Loyola University professor Devin Price. We're talking about his latest book, Unmasking Autism. He writes about the experiences of autistic adults, particularly trans autistic adults, and the unique challenges and biases they face. Now, Devin, you recently wrote a Twitter thread discouraging trans adults from seeking a formal diagnosis. Why is that? Unfortunately, we're living in a time where there is a lot of fear-mongering and a lot of uh, legal statutes passing all across the country that are trying to gatekeep access to transition-related health care. So, of course, there have been bans all over the country, mostly in red states, um, restricting children from being on hormone blockers and sometimes even criminalizing their parents just for using the right name and pronouns for their kid. It's a really scary situation, and unfortunately, a lot of the trans-exclusionary slash gender-critical, whatever you want to call them, activists, when they're pointing to the reasons that they want to see transition-related care uh, restricted, one of the big things that they raise over and over again is this overlap between transness and autism that Mm -hmm. we do see in the data. J.K. Rowling, when she kind of came out as trans-exclusionary in a blog post uh, in 2020, she specifically said that she's worried that, in her mind, autistic girls, quote-unquote, are being tricked online into thinking that we're trans men. Wow. Um, this is a really 
big part of anti-trans rhetoric right now. Um, and so in my Twitter thread, I really just put out there that if you're trans, if you know you want hormones or surgery, there is a legal precedent for barring transition-related care to autistic people. In a lot of European countries, in the UK, in Finland, in lots of other places, you have to go through an autism assessment before being cleared to get gender-affirming care. We don't have that problem in the U.S., thankfully, but I, with the political tide the way it is, I would not be shocked to start seeing those those restrictions that are already being put on transition-related care for kids um, applying to adults as well, particularly disabled ones. And, and we should note that so-called elective procedures uh, include medically necessary surgeries as well? Absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of uh, life-saving, gender-affirming care is branded by the people that oppose it to be a cosmetic surgery, even though we know that things like top surgery, um, gender confirmation surgery, bottom surgery, whatever you want to call it, there are really improved mental health outcomes for trans people after we undergo these. Um, And also there's just the basic argument that cis people are able to go and reach out and and get the care that they need in a gender-affirming way without all of this medical gatekeeping and um, needing to get a letter from a psychiatrist to prove that you're competent enough to consent to these kinds of surgeries. So um, there's already this this big legal divide in terms of who has the freedom to do with their body what they yeah. wish, and trans people come on the losing side of that. And um, yeah, as I mentioned already, if you have any kind of disability or mental illness, you're at an even higher risk of being said, oh, your body doesn't really belong mm-hmm. to you and your identity doesn't either. Why do you see self-diagnosis or self-determination as a valid route for autistic people? So I already mentioned a lot of the problems with how diagnosis works, um, especially in America, but Mm -hmm. everywhere, really. Diagnostic tools are really flawed and targeted to only a really small population of people. Autism assessments in the U.S. are also incredibly expensive. They're not usually covered by insurance. They can run from five to even $10,000. And they don't really come with tangible benefits the way, say, a diagnosis of ADHD might get you access to medication that really helps many people with their ADHD symptoms. There isn't really any treatment, quote-unquote, for autism like that because it really is a neurodiversity. It's just Mm -hmm. a source of human variance that's really always been there. In the book, I do draw a parallel to transness that um, until very recently, if you wanted to get hormones, Um, or even legally transition your gender, you needed to be diagnosed with a mental illness, a gender identity disorder. And that was only removed from the most recent handbook of mental disorders a few years ago. Until then, to be yourself as a trans person, you had to have a psychiatrist say there was something wrong with you. And I'm basically arguing for kind of a parallel here with autism, that there's nothing wrong with us. And so why would you need to diagnose something that's just a source of diversity that you can recognize and celebrate. Yeah. And, you know, I I have to mention there seems to be this misconception that people self-diagnose themselves after watching one video they relate to on TikTok or other social media apps. What do you have to say to that? I understand why people worry about that. I mean, you get on TikTok and you see really short info bites of without any context about mental illness and neurodiversity. And um, I don't think it's the best place to learn about it by any means. But the thing that I always like to really point out is that when people empathize with members of the neurodiverse community and realize that they have struggles in common with us and that they might benefit from the very same accommodations that we need, you know, flex time, work from home options, 
dimmer lights, uh, quiet hours at the grocery store. These are things that benefit a lot of people. A lot of people are under the neurodivergent umbrella in some way or form. And so I'm not too concerned about all of these people rushing forward and claiming to be autistic because there isn't really any benefit for an individual doing that. But what there is a benefit for is for people learning about us, getting to meet us, joining our communities online, learning about our concerns. We're really stronger together. And I think everyone stands to benefit from autistic liberation and a lot of these accommodations that autistic people need. So we don't need to really tightly gatekeep interest in these things. Um, We're better off the more people embrace Mm -hmm. being a part of our community or being on our side. Yeah. And it sounds like um, it it can be difficult to find resources as an autistic adult, but it also sounds like there's a community. Are there any resources you suggest for autistic Chicagoans? Yeah, Autistics Against Curing Autism Chicago is my favorite group. It used to be a subchapter of ASAN, which is the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network. So just check out both of those organizations. There's chapters not just in Chicago, but throughout the country, and both digital and in-person opportunities to really be around people who are neurodivergent and, um, you know, just learn more and get to see yourself reflected in that community or to just kind of be there to be supportive to that community. That's Devin Price, the author of Unmasking Autism. He's also a social psychologist and clinical assistant professor at Loyola University, Chicago. Thanks, Devin. Thank you so much for having me. Want more context on the top issues of the day? Find the podcast, WBEZ's Reset, wherever you listen.